You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Where was the fighting dynamo, the party leader of 1888, ready to politic on principle, to take the fight on the tariff issue and others? Where, friends thought, was Grover Cleveland a claimant to a superior number of popular votes? Not in this letter. I have sent for death and destruction, he wrote to Daniel Lamont, his former gubernatorial and presidential secretary. Death and destruction was Grover Cleveland's rifle. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. I think... There ought to be a touching of elbows on the presidential question. You didn't get much out of Stephen Grover Cleveland, but friends could read a lot in the little, and there was a lot there enough to make plans. There ought to be a touching of elbows. Maybe the former president was ready to leave the old Dutch castle at 816 Madison Avenue in New York City. Maybe set aside his speeches on good government in George Washington, which were starting to lack the old zip. Perhaps he could resist being apart from his young wife, Frances, darling of democratic America, and his new baby, Ruth. Maybe he was ready to lead once again, and even like it. Before this moment, many of his friends had to ask, is Grover gone? Allusions in his letters to fishing rods and horses were frequent. The gun room at Buzzards Bay that he liked to visit, as 1889, the year that he exited the presidency, turned 1890, and even turned to 1891. Still, in this letter, the house is perfectly quiet, Bissell. I have been up to find my wife and child sleeping, and the nurse too. I have just entered the real world, meaning the world of being a parent. Fame, Bissell. Honor, Bissell. Place, Everything are put aside when I see a small child. This is touching to us, of course, but where was the fighting dynamo, the party leader of 1888, ready to politic on principle, to take the fight on the tariff issue and others? Where, friends thought, was Grover Cleveland a claimant to a superior number of popular votes? Not in this letter. I have sent for death and destruction, he wrote to Daniel Lamont, his former gubernatorial and presidential secretary. I have sent for death and destruction, and Mrs. Cleveland's rifle, too. He was at Saranac, New York. He loved nothing more than shooting ducks and shooting rabbits. He wrote a book on that topic after his presidency, with specific instructions. Still always the corruption fighter, De Lamont, he complained, that his fishing rod came, and the vendor gave it to him for free because he used to be president. I insist I must pay for it. Why would anyone wish to run for the presidency, he tells one well-wisher. My nomination would lead to certain defeat. My God, his friend Gilder said, 
Grover's never as happy as when he's tossed the presidency away. A former president, all the thunder of Washington, the District of Columbia, and his fingers. Letters, written and franked. Stamps, gears, and greenbacks moved at his word and his pen. Some 400,000 decisions in a presidency, at least in his. Some 400,000 decisions. He was a symbol of a crusade now. The people's choice in hearts, if not in electoral votes. An honest battle, spoken in truth. A man entirely different from anyone politicos had seen before. He summons the Speaker of the House, Carlisle, and tells him, Here is my view, and I want to hear your opinion. But I must tell you, this is my opinion, and I will continue to express this, even if I am the only man in the country doing so. A Speaker of the House, who lived by vote counting, could not believe it. He would tell that story over and over again for decades afterwards of his summons, of the look in his eyes when he said, I'll be for this issue if I'm the only man in the country. A man in his words, not guided by the Lorelei of politics. This is popular, well-regarded sheriff, elevated to the highest office America could offer. Now home, not in Washington, in New York, yet his personal reputation improved. Not everyone in 19th century politics would say that, but many did. He was robbed, many did say. He was robbed, millions said it. Choked in the Electoral College, the mechanism, steam power conspiracy, Republicrats and Democlins, people switching places and parties, bosses trading favors in the streets of New York, strangers wading into inner city districts with waste bags full, faithless men in tar-smoked clubs, chattering upholstery, unkind words. Those things don't matter. In Cleveland, there was only principle. Not ten. Those 400,000 decisions of his presidency, he would reverse. Not ten he told his wife, his secretary, his aged old running mate, arthritic and valiant. Only principle is all that matters. His run for re-election, the first time which he loses in the Electoral College in 1888, he describes as a temporary defeat for a stand worth taking. His wife, Frances, married in the White House. Legend says, tells the White House servants not to change the curtains because they will be back. That's Francis, though. Now, with all this rabbit talk, letters dripping with candlelight ambiguity, that he had too many enemies in New York, that he wouldn't be allowed to win, even if he won. Best wishes in his letters for a good, sensible man, someone he could agree on, a good Democrat could run and take the office in his stead. Other things, Colonel, he told one letter writer. Other things, Colonel, command my attention. So then these words... A touching of elbows. Oh, yes, of course. At his command, a touching of elbows would occur. Elbows would be touched. Five hundred men in his gang would grab shoulders, for God's sakes. Senator from Kentucky, for Senator from Michigan, a governor of Pennsylvania. William C. Whitney, who had constructed America's gunboat navy and resurfaced the entire transit system of New York, would get the machine going. He was ready, but not a word, until Grover said so. Grover had been right too many times about politics. 
But those same friends remember the agonizing over a simple trip to Rochester, New York, a public appearance, endless letter pings from worried Cleveland for details. I'm anxious, he said. Let me know. I'll be full of dust. I want to retire to the hotel and then a quick, quiet carriage ride through the park. Shall I be greeted by the mayor of Rochester? Shall there be a committee? That I won't do. I can't be seen prowling around. It's unseemly. That's not what his political men wanted to hear. Yet more hints in letters as 1890 became 1891. I would not shrink from duty. I cannot forego offering my opinion on political questions. So the first thing to understand about Grover Cleveland, who as of today remains the only president to be elected again non-consecutively with another president serving in between, is that he had won a popular vote in 1888. What sunk him was that he narrowly lost the state of New York with a Tammany Hall powerful machine, normally Democrat, but not liking Grover Cleveland, the Democratic nominee for president at best sitting on their hands and probably, rumors say, helping Benjamin Harrison into the White House. Republicans having their own bosses, boss Matthew Quay, on a vote-getting and vote-suppressing effort in the Empire State as was never seen before. New York State was a much bigger chunk of the election in 1888 than it is now, and Benjamin Harrison enters the White House. However, because Cleveland had stood in the election on the issue of free trade, that is, low tariffs, made a speech about it right before the election, something presidents were not normally seen to do in this era. The thing that amazed that Speaker of the House. Many thought he was signing his political death warrant. And it didn't work out for him, but he was well set up when Harrison and the Congress passed Congressman William McKinley's tariff bill, raising tariffs on many things, largely unpopular. Raises prices on common items, particularly tin. The GOP loses the midterms of 1890 badly, and Harrison's fighting with Republican bosses, just like Cleveland was, and battling with a rival, his sickly Secretary of State, James Blaine. Sick as he is, he still may want Harrison's job or people will push him into it, particularly his son. Bring Cleveland back, the calls begin. The Republicans have no idea what they're doing. It answers in letters. I have no political ambition. I have, indeed, a complete lack of it. If you hear about the 1892 election at all in textbooks, it's two things. You'll hear about the populists running for the first time in a major way. And then you'll hear about this is Grover Cleveland's comeback to non-consecutive terms, a little bit about that new party and all of that. But it might set up the story to seem like it's easier than it was that Cleveland just sort of walked into it. And that's not it at all. First non-consecutive president, yes. Now, it's not the first to try. Grant's friends would try to get him in 1880. They narrowly lost at the convention. Van Buren tried before him. Fillmore tried trying to get a non-consecutive term. Teddy Roosevelt would try in 1912, but it did not happen for any of them. After all, why didn't he win in 1888? He said it was principal and stood on an issue, but what detractors raised is, why would you want to run a losing candidate again? What if it was not principal, but it was campaign incompetence? And that was in many minds. Giving up the presidency 
has consequences that the Cleveland forces are going to need to clear to make their dream happen. And in the story of Cleveland's third election, third nomination for the presidency by his party, there's issue straddling, vote begging, pandering, non-pandering to pander in a different way. The old, I don't need your vote, so give it to me. The attempt to be nobody's first choice, but everybody's second. Fake delegates, cross-party interference plots, scarecrow festivals, and snappers. The theft of a city in broad daylight, anti-snapperism, anti-egoism, too much goody-goody, and a little 19th century side-eye all figure in this story of steam power politics. Why should I have any desire to return to the presidency? Cleveland writes to George Parker. It involves a responsibility beyond human strength. That's a view of his in 1891. Now, after another incumbent has been in office, it's worse, Cleveland writes. It's worse now, he tells Parker. Because he'll be, in effect, the cleanup man. Special interests have now used up the treasury. It'll be so much harder than being re-elected from a clean first term. Well, if superhuman strength is needed, more than a few Clevelandites think that he's got it. But he has his enemies, too. Not all Democratic newspapers like Grover Cleveland. Cleveland is the synonym of defeat, said the New Haven Morning Palladium. His egotism is his best feature. Intelligent Democrats are tired of hearing there is no other choice than the restore Cleveland. The Brooklyn Eagle said it was weary, very weary, of Cleveland being spoken of as so much better than his party. The democracy has no use for men who think that they are better than it. Note, democracy is a way, at this time, of referring to the Democratic Party, the democracy. Too much goody-good, opined the Topeka Daily Press, a newspaper of said democracy, who urged mole-eyed mugwumps who supported Cleveland to move on. An important thing to understand about 19th century politics, particularly for the Democrats, is that you can think of all of the issues in a triangle. Think of all the issues as a triangle. Okay, on one point we got tariff, another we got civil service, and the other we got money supply. A triangle. An average Democrat in 1889 is, say, should be for all three. They're for low tariffs, that's taxes on imports, which at this point is the only tax of significance the federal government has. It's also whiskey taxes. Let's not get into that. Taxes on imports, which protect manufacturers, but make things expensive because there's no foreign competition. An average Democrat is pro-civil service reform, too. Why? Because mostly Republican presidents have been in power and have appointed most of their friends to the civil service. And civil service reform would enable Democrats to remain in office even under a Republican president. So Democrats tended to be pushing this since they were out of power so much. And a good 1889 Democrat would be for silver money, inflationary money, an attempt to increase the supply of money. There are a few issues, but most relate to those three points of the triangle. Tariff, silver, 
civil service. There are other issues. You might be for better relationship with Britain. That has a little element of the triangle point. You might be for reduced or expanded pensions. You might be against political machines or pro-business or anti-corruption. Cleveland checks two of these three 19th century issue triangle points just fine. He is for a low tariff. He's one of his party's strongest fighters for a low tariff. He's a tariff pugilist. He has staked his presidency in the 1888 election on a speech demanding a lower tariff. Check on that part of the triangle. He's also for civil service reform, and he means it. It will be enforced well under him as president, and he'll protect those in jobs even if they're Republicans. He showed that in his first term. He came in as a Democrat. Yes, they replaced many Republicans with Democrats, but those specifically protected by the Civil Service Reform Act were protected. And some say Cleveland even went a little farther and was in no hurry to rush uh, all the Republicans out the door in the name of the spoil system. But the third box, silver money, Cleveland is decidedly not for. He does not want to introduce silver or any inflationary type money into the American economy. Money should be based on the nation's gold reserves. He uses terms of psychology to describe the opposite opinion, lunacy, craziness, when he hears of talk of silver money. So on the map of the United States, that puts Grover Cleveland at odds with members of his party from the West and the South, right where his own Democratic Party is strongest. So that definitely puts him at odds with most of the party's members. Well, how the heck then did he get a nomination for this party? He's, he ran in 1884 and won the White House by the nomination of a party that doesn't agree with him on this major issue that he's forceful about. That's right. He did. The thing is, Democrats want to win the White House. And you don't win the White House in the 1880s or the 1890s without New York. A silverite, it's thought, isn't going to win New York State. And so, everybody dances. People support their second choice. Oh, I'd really like a silver right to win the Democratic nomination, but if we can't do that, I'd support Grover Cleveland. That's kind of the way 1884 went. The goody-goody GOP members, you know, people like Teddy Roosevelt, but not him. He stayed with the GOP party in the 1884 election, but people like him and people who had been like his father— sometimes called mugwumps, reforming Republicans who don't want to see so much cronyism and corruption. They'll support Cleveland even as a Democrat because they know he'll be good on this issue, on good government. Cleveland wins, but it's achingly close in 1884, almost loses that election as a party. Do you want that compromise again? That's the question everyone's asking. Why should you take only two of the three boxes of your party? As the calendar pages turn, why there's a new face. David B. Hill, bold and mustached, from a small village in New York, a lawyer on the big. But don't be fooled, he's not just some village lawyer, he's with Tommy Hall. The sachem that controls New York City's political levers. 
Grover Cleveland becomes president, Hill takes his spot as governor. And not in a friendly way. He's no friend. It's don't let the door hit you. In the 1890 elections, the midterms, Democrats win big. And in New York State, they particularly win big. The praise flows. Hill is swell. And he's united the Democrats, winning their first big win after the 88 loss. He's a uniter where Steve Cleave is a divider. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Where's David Hill's issue triangle? On paper, he's the same as Grover Cleveland. This is the weird thing. For a guy that's a rival, he's coming from the exact place. He has two points in the triangle, technically. Tariffs low. Check. Civil service, he's pro that, and he's for hard money, all like Cleveland, and on that money issue against two-thirds of his party. But that isn't going to get him Western Democrats for a nomination, so he juggles. And David Hill, as newspapers say, is an artful juggler, one of the best. While Hill is for low tariffs, just like Grover Cleveland, he represents an eastern state with lots of industry, and he's avoided that label that they attach to low-tariff folks, free traders. Hill is not going to be called a free trader. Cleveland embraces that title. Hill does not. Hill will also cover farm products and protect sugar and cotton with special tariffs. In terms of civil service, it's a similar thing. Well, sure, as long as the GOP is in office, we should have a protected civil service. But when Democrats win, it's kind of let the jobs flow. And there he differs from Cleveland a lot too. He won't be grumbly like Cleveland. 
Government jobs are for the winners. Then you get to the money supply issue. Here, there should be no possible juggle. David Hill is for gold money, for a hard money supply. You don't win the Empire State with a silver right platform. He even personally thinks that those silver rights are crazy schemers, babbling things on paper to get votes that aren't going to work, that could destroy the country. That puts him right with Cleveland. Yet a newspaper said he had a way to have you focused on the balls in motion and not the juggler's hands. He speaks at Cooper Union, New York, that place that you spoke at in the 19th century. Lincoln spoke there, and he can command attention. I am for free by metalism, he said. The hell is free by metalism? Basically this. Use gold money or use silver money. But if you use silver money, it's at the rate that it's worth in the market. Not artificially inflated like silver rights wanted. This allows him to attack both Republicans, who recently caved to their own silver right faction, adopting an act to require the government to buy silver. Our policy has the money supply on impregnable ground. So what David Hill does, in case it's not clear, is rather than take a stand and say, you know, we should be for silver money or we should be for gold money, he removes the metal out of it and says he's for free by metalism. He, he concentrates on the free part. Hill is for freedom. Use what money you want. But we're going to protect it by saying if you use silver money, it's only worth the silver value which is not a lot. It's not artificially inflated. And then he hits Cleveland on this. Cleveland's right on the issue. He's wrong on style. He's too committed. He's too committed to the issue that I also support. He's dividing us from our friends in the party. The Republicans have him scared. They conned him into convulsing at their scarecrow festivals. He jokes, professing so much about gold that many in the West won't touch him and won't touch our party. There's so much there. And and for anyone who thinks that like uh, politics were simpler in the 19th century and all these complexities, what Hill is basically saying is Republicans are interfering with our politics. That's something that happens now, like Democrats jump into Republican primaries with some kind of sneaky ads and sometimes Republicans do the same. You know, they're seeing it. They're trying to call you Democrats out who are hard money Democrats and get you to start convulsing at their scarecrow festivals. In other words, be, you know, make statements that are so strong on hard money that you're angering the rest of the party. So we'll nominate someone who can't possibly win the general election. It's a complicated argument that Hill makes, but he's booming. Carter Harrison, the former mayor of Chicago and now a newspaper owner who um, thinks that the reason he lost his mayoral election is... The papers were too critical of him, so he bought Chicago Times. Now he gets involved. I'm a, I want a Western candidate, he says. He's really powerful in Chicago among Democrats. I want a Westerner. I want a Silverite, but I'll take Hill as my second choice. Zingo. This is where Hill wants to be politically. Now Hill tours the South. And no, it's not an official presidential campaign, of course. It's just a statue dedication here, a festival there. Oh, going to see an old friend. There he was. Hat, shiny buttons, crimson and indigo bunting. Nashville, Atlanta, Jackson, Mississippi. A vote-begging tour, the Atlanta Journal snips. 
In Jackson, a sign of the new America, Pete Longstreet, Daniel Sickles, a Confederate and Union general, sitting behind to listen to none other than David Hill, the new force of the Democratic Party. Grover Cleveland starts getting letters, you know, and and from some of the friends, it's like, oh, Grover, it's a flop. Hill is terrible. The speeches are falling flat. But the news coverage for Hill is good. And Cleveland's Mississippi friend, Justice Lamar, is saying, Men I expected better from are here at Hill's rally. It was skillfully planned. And just in reviewing the letters of Grover Cleveland and some of the biographies, you, you see a little change. Nothing inspires anyone like a rival, right? Cleveland tells Bissell and Lamont, We'd be fooled to be hauled off by Hill and his gang. To another reporter who suggested that Cleveland was out of the running. So a reporter's trying to kind of call him out by saying, well, Cleveland said he's not running, right? Cleveland responds, when I say I'm out of the running, y'all be the first to know. I will not read the information gabbled about by busybodies who speculate what impression is left alleged in their minds. But let's back up a bit. In 1891, House Democrats float a silver purchase bill of their own. The Republicans have done it, and now they do it. It's going to be dead in the Senate, but Democrats have the House, and they're putting it forward now. The money supply is shifting, though. That issue is shifting. Some hard money Democrats, gold bugs, you might say, who had been for only hard money while President Cleveland was in office, shift to entertaining silver now that Cleveland's not in office. A curious roundabout occurs. Rumors spread that Cleveland has changed his mind. People are, in effect, speaking for him again. He's written a letter, they say, to Senator Dickinson of Michigan. Dickinson says, that's preposterous. There's no letter. But the rumors, amazingly, don't die. People still ask for this Dickinson letter, where Cleveland allegedly changed his opinion on the money question. Then they say, he's written a letter to George Vest of Kentucky, promised that he's for silver now. Vest also denies, I don't have any letter. But he goes a little further. He suggests that, I think Cleveland knows it's plausible to consider soft money ideas. It's all speculation, which Cleveland abhors that the senator engaged in. Bissell, other friends... Tell Cleveland, ignore this, boss. Please stay quiet. And then he's invited to speak at a dinner of the Reform Club. The Reform Club is for hard money, also for low tariffs. They want him to speak to this issue and to state his position plainly. It's my duty, he tells friends. I'm supposed to be the leader of a party. He writes a letter to the head of that Reform Club, who he knows will make the first page of, uh, of all the newspapers. He declines the invitation, and thank you very much, I can't speak at the dinner, but I will say this. Silver money schemes are dangerous and reckless. Reaction is mixed. Big, sound, and wise politics, a correspondent from the Boston Post says. Let the fools have it direct. We know where Cleveland stands. Yet his biographer Alan Nevin says... He is now the Ajax, marked by his defiance. He's sticking out there as a person associated with the issue, in this case, silver money. An issue that has the opposition of like two-thirds of his party. And so even his friend, 
Bissell, uh, his friend Lamont asks him, can you change your letter? Can you write a second letter? Just change it because I think it is being manipulated to make you look like an ultra is what in Cleveland in not so many words says, yeah, I am an ultra. He says, Lamont, I've never felt better since I left the presidency. Meanwhile, Hill now issues an interesting line of attack, even though he is for hard money. Oh, Cleveland foolishly went knee-deep in for it. He has run us into collision with our fellow Democrats and wrecked our chances in 1892. Not only that, there's reports now that the rumors about Cleveland switching to silver money policy were actually set up. There's an article in the Boston Post that Republicans had actually inspired some of the Cleveland is for silver talk to get Cleveland out on the issue and to drive a big old wedge between Democrats. Hill's got something else. He's governor of New York and senator at the same time. No one else has done this since. He's generally, by convention, supposed to give up the governorship, but he doesn't. He holds on to both. In New York State, he changes all kinds of things, keeping the Tammany Tiger happy with the right appointments. And down in D.C., his favored Speaker of the House, Charles Crisp of Georgia, gets the gavel. Cleveland would have hoped for Roger Q. Mills of Texas, a hard-money purist. On the tariff issue, both Crisp and Mills are ostensibly in the same place. But Speaker Crisp is going to appoint to the committee uh, that would introduce tariff legislation a high-tariff supporter. So it's effectively Crisp, who's an ally of Hill, killing the tariff issue that Grover Cleveland would like to see pursued. Hill enters the Senate to a king's celebration. You now hear Cleveland writing to Justice Lamar and saying, No one shall say I should refuse to serve in a time of evil. He'll do it if he's called to do it. It's enough for his supporters to start to get to work. And it's here where Hill makes his fatal mistake compounded by a second one that his allies make. The New York Democrats call a convention to pick their 1892 Democratic delegates, the ones that will go to the convention in Chicago. And they set the convention time for the New York convention in February 1892. It's very cold in February. Albany, where the convention will be held, is at the center of the state. The city delegates... They can easily arrive in Albany, even in the cold weather, or from New York City. Delegates from far upstate will have much more trouble reaching there. Eyebrows are raised, including one big one. A reporter asks Cleveland what he thinks. Here's from the New York World, April 1892, capturing Cleveland's comments. With a broad smile, the ex-president continued, What you tell me is quite interesting. You see, I know so little about the matter. What does uh, Mr. Croker, the head of uh, Tammany, say? He thinks it's all right. He believes young men in innovations and may want to run over to Europe and back before June 1st. He believes in young men. He believes in innovations and may want to run over to Europe and back before June 1st. Again, Mr. Cleveland's face was the picture of innocent merriment, but he only remarked in a very general way that he was glad to hear of men in public life who did not allow politics to interfere with their personal affairs. The utmost good humor was apparent in every muscle of his face. 
Asked to make a statement for quotation, Mr. Cleveland said in the drollest possible manner, The state committee has selected a historic day. I hope the weather will be fine. Cleveland's side-eye is obvious to the reporter and everybody, and it gets the issue rolling. Why is this convention being held in February just to elect someone Tammany wants, probably? He'll be. In New York, state protests against this SNAP convention are loud. Demands are made for a new convention, and it's met with refusal. A group from Buffalo, a thousand people, nominated a convention to go to Chicago in protest these anti-snappers. It had no chance of being seated, but the anti-snap group showed people in other areas that Cleveland had real support in New York State. Papers in New York writing articles about this story are relayed to papers around the country. And when Democratic delegates in the western states see what Hill is doing and don't like it, some state delegations in Kentucky this happens. Even though there's a pro-silver delegation, they'll support Cleveland. They want to win. Not only this, Tammany Hall and the city government aligned with Hill and the the state legislature aligned with Hill pass in New York an elections inspector bill, which is designed to allow Tammany control over the voting. The theft of a city, Harper's Magazine screams. Right when Hill doesn't need it, right when he'd like to take the presidency away out of Grover Cleveland's hands... There's bad publicity. Here's an oven. By the beginning of May 1862, the Hill boom had completely collapsed. Rhode Island in March held the second state convention, and Hill and his aides go and make earnest efforts to carry it and open negotiations with Rhode Island leaders, but all in vain. The state chooses Cleveland delegates. Then in Georgia, the noisily advertised strongest state for Hill in the South, despite Speaker Crisp, working for him, saying Hill would be better. Hill would stand up for Georgia if there was a force bill placed upon it, more aggressively than Cleveland would. Yes, that's sad. After all this time, right, we're looking back, and it's basically a contest in the Democratic, it's not a primary, in the Democratic Convention contest over who will be president in Georgia's deciding based on who will let us be racist more, Cleveland or Hill. This is the South in this time. As Nevin says, it is in the Peach State where the prostration of the Hill boom showed he was utterly beaten. Georgia elects delegates for Cleveland as well. There's still a little work. Whitney, running the show as Cleveland's campaign manager, has to deal with a revolt in Montana. He has to smooth over Hill supporters in New York City before the convention. He holds a conference at his house to choreograph things. He has meetings in the Palmer House in Chicago. He wins over James Smith, the New Jersey Hudson County boss. The entire New Jersey delegation goes to Cleveland. If Tammany Hall won't go, he'll find another machine. James Smith is young now, but later he'll be butting heads with a President Woodrow Wilson. So it's pretty well wrapped up by the time you get to June 23rd and June 24th in Chicago, 1892. The Democratic Convention starts. William Whitney comes to Chicago... And he tells Cleveland he's having meetings at the Parker House. He's got to push votes away. He's getting so many supportive delegates for him. But we should say, it's the 19th century and no conventions are really totally wrapped up. You don't have primaries. You don't have delegates who are kind of bound to vote a certain way. Though we have the word of a state delegation leader to one campaign or another, sure. But there's a 
famous uh, quote from uh, William Jennings Bryan, where he you know, said, basically, a c- convention's like a human animal. You just don't know what's going to happen. And four years after this, William Jennings Bryan is going to be the beneficiary of that kind of animal magnetism. They're going to pick him up and carry him away and nominate him for president. Four years earlier, this is Tammany Hall's moment to do just that. They ran out of every political weapon that they could use with the Snop Convention, lost the support of delegates, and now there's an attempt to pull at the delegates' heartstrings. Hey, if you all went on a crusade for Cleveland, maybe we can swing you back to Hill or someone else at this point. And they've got a secret weapon, one of their best speakers, one of the, the best orators of the time, Burke Cochran. And just to just so you know, he's going to have a long career of speaking, going to go into the 20s. And Burke Cochran is going to be a model, an inspiration, a mentor even for Winston Churchill. So when you hear that Churchill speech, remember his influence is Burke Cochran. That's who Tammany Hall's got lined up to speak for their cause. Maybe, just maybe, he can move some people. At minimum, in this noisy convention, they're going to stop and listen to him. And Tammany hopes he can get a, a stampede going. The final session, just before the balloting, begins at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And now the speakers start. And from 5 to 7, people are nominating their choice for a candidate, either Hill or Cleveland or a few others. Home state candidates, 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, state after state, hour after hour, 10 o'clock, 11, speaker after impassioned speaker, until it's 1.30 in the morning, and it's still going. The crowd of 15,000 becomes so restless. Speakers are now just being shouted at by the mass. Nevin says that speakers were being shouted at and heard only practically in pantomime. A great orator from Virginia is speaking, and he can't even be heard. It's raining, too, and thunder's heard, and the sound of the thunder mixes with the unruly crowd. You can't tell which is which, people shouting or the thunder. There's rain coming into the stadium in Chicago, and it's through the leaking roof, and in some cases onto the platform, and people there getting wet. And at this moment, the figure emerges. Burly Irishman, Burke Cochran, starts making his way to the platform. He's tired, and he has a cold, and he'd rather rest right now. In fact, he asks the men at the platform, can we have a recess? Cleveland forces shake their head. They want the matter decided now. They don't want people thinking overnight. He won't get the votes for a recess. And so Cochran goes on. Here's Nevins. Cochran launched into his speech quietly, his mellow, penetrating voice, that slight Irish accent agreeably reaching its flavor, reaching every part of the hall. His manner and diction were perfect. It fell into place with the precision of a cut and polished block. Now, what was he saying? Essentially, his message is, Democrats, be Democrats, break the spell. Vote for Democrats, real Democrats, 
do not support anyone who is raised by those who will attack this party. I know you like Grover Cleveland. I know because he was the first Democratic president since the Civil War. I know he's popular, Cochran says, but it's a popularity based on the fact that his opponents speak well of him, but will not vote for him. It's delusive. It may arouse enthusiasm for months before the election, but it produces disappointment for four years after the election. And on that, there's cheers from those who support Tammany, and there's boos from those who support Cleveland. Cleveland is a popular man every day of the year except one, and that's Election Day. This was a speech seconding Hill's nomination. And Burke Cochran continues, At least 25,000 Union War veterans in New York will not vote for Cleveland. Cleveland had not served in the Civil War. General Daniel E. Sickles is now in the audience and arises from the center aisle and is visible to many. And he's recorded as saying, Never, never, agreeing with Cochran. He's not a Cleveland supporter. It is said that there is an independent element that will accept a certain candidacy or other. That there is an element that will support the man while they continue to deride and denounce the party. He's talking about the mugwumps. He's talking about the idea that you keep saying to vote for Cleveland because there are Republicans in New York State that will turn around and vote for But He said, yes, but they'll continue to bash this party while supporting the man Cleveland. And what kind of candidate is that? I have never known the Republican that I am not willing to welcome into the other party if he professes a desire to be a Democrat. God forbid that this party whose growth is the hope of a generation should close its doors. But what we do protest against in New York is that our party shall surrender into control of those who despise and dislike it, and that one man may be exalted and the Democratic host may be degraded. Two o'clock in the morning becomes 2.15, and there's no sign that this man has a cold or anything like it. He's fully engaged. For three quarters of an hour, Nevin says, he held his exhausted audience in absorbed attention. He addresses the people that are asking Tammany Hall, will they be loyal? If the convention nominates Cleveland, will they be loyal? Today, we have a united delegation from all the state with the history that I have mentioned behind you, warning you, gentlemen, that this step which you are about to take is fraught with imminent peril to the Democratic Party. But you remind me of my profession of loyalty. You remind me of the glorious history of the organization which I am identified, which rocked the cradle of liberty and furled in the banner of democracy when Jefferson was elected, watched over our liberties through the darkest hours, from its home in 14th Street, when there was barely a hustings upon which the democratic fate could be proclaimed throughout the northern states. You remind me of that glorious history, and you say to me that we must be loyal. I, gentlemen, we of the regular democracy will be loyal to the party. We will be loyal no matter who is selected. But they know that the faithful are not comprised within the ranks of militants the organizations that must bear the brunt of the day, we will go back to our people if you send us back. We will take the commission which you place in our hands. We will submit to the indignity and the outrage. And we will try to undo all we have done for the eight years. We will try to take those two irreconcilable elements, the mugwumps, 
and the Democrats and fuse them into a mighty force for victory in November next. But let me warn you, gentlemen, that the professions of nine years and the lessons of nine years cannot be undone in three months. These men who have been taught by us to believe that the mugwump was the natural fall of the universal suffrage, means enemy, opponent, of universal suffrage and of free democratic institutions. The hostility to democracy was based on the fact that it was the party of the horny-hearted and the brow that sweated and toiled. You see, Cochran's really smart here. He's telling this crowd of Democrats, you're going to go back, send us back to our state and say, all the people that we opposed all these years who told you voters that you're nothing but lousy working class people, that now we're allies. If we go back and tell them now, these men are, after all, the true exponents of democratic faith. They will doubt our sincerity and refuse the ticket, or else they will concede our sincerity. They will visit us with their contempt. And in both events, the ticket will be menaced with disaster. Now remember that it takes not much of an abstention from the polls to damage democratic prospects. So, Here's Cochran making his own elective. This is a double electability argument. The Cleveland forces are saying, you got to vote for Cleveland because he's electable. Cochran's now saying, you think he's electable? Not in New York State where you need, look what happened in 88. Both people making this electability argument. Built upon the solid rock of democratic harmony, democratic unity, democratic enthusiasm, and the people to whom you have trusted will repay your confidence by majority so decisive that Republican prophets throughout the nation will undergo the same blight they have received in this state, whose triumphant democracy asks you now only for the permission to assure you a democratic victory in November. It's 2.45 a.m. when Cochran finishes, and the hall erupts in applause. Even people for Cleveland at this point are looking at this guy at 2.45 in the morning, still speaking, and are amazed. And they know it's over, too, and they're applauding. Any booze happening now are drowned out, because after all, the end of his speech was about how great the Democratic voters were. There's now an attempt again to, to adjourn. It's refused. And at 2.50 a.m., they start the balloting for president. Henry Cabot Lodge is from the opposing party. But he says, how very fine I thought your speech was. Strong, conclusive, dignified, as it seemed to me. All listened with rapt attention. But few Democrats on the convention floor were swayed. As Nevin said, Tammany threw out its thunderbolt. But the spell was not broken. Hill gets 114 delegates, a Silverite gets 103, and Grover Cleveland gets 617 delegates and the nomination. It is a funeral, said one newspaper of Hill. Here's James Ford Rhodes' uh, History of the United States, 1852-1896. The Democratic Convention assembled in Chicago on June 21st and declared for a tariff for revenue only and denounced the McKinley Bill as the culminating atrocity of class legislation. Yeah, don't, don't forget, this tariff issue is a, is a class issue. And it's the issue on which Grover Cleveland and most of these Democrats in the hall are at least going to appear or appeal that they're on the side of the working man because of low prices. Both conventions straddled on the silver question. Cleveland was now in their nominee. 
It would have been the height of absurdity to run him on the free silver platform, Rhodes writes, which of course he would have promptly repudiated. As Senator Vest from Kentucky said on the silver issue, we believe Cleveland to be wrong, but honestly wrong, and he has as much right to his opinion as we have to ours. Theodore Roosevelt, who's in Washington right now, a close observer of passing political events, said, The silver Democrats by no means abandoned their principles, but their sentiment was thus expressed. Let us beat the Republicans first and then tackle silver. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Newspapers are divided. Here's the Memphis Ledger. Cleveland's nomination should satisfy everyone. Whether it will or not, that's quite another thing. The Philadelphia Inquirer. Cleveland represents a bad cause and a divided party. The Philadelphia Press. The Democrats welcome Mr. Cleveland because they believe in his personality and his leadership. The Republicans welcome him because they rejoice in the issue he emphasizes and because they feel that the clearer this issue, the more certain of their victory. The Memphis Appeal Avalanche, the people of triumph fresh from the hearts of the masses, sprang the great movement, which brushing aside all impediments has once more made Grover Cleveland commander-in-chief of the Grand Army of the Democracy. The trenches are ringing with cheers under the old leader, who is no but one defeat. The boys have taken new hope, and they're ready to storm the heights. And just to pour cold water on that, the Chicago Tribune. The Democratic Party has chosen its ticket, and it could not have pleased Republicans better. The candidate's smell of defeat. Mr. Cleveland was beaten at the last presidential election. Mr. Stevenson was defeated by the people in 1880. That's a ticket of two back numbers. The ticket may be properly translated. Mr. Yesterday and Mr. Day Before Yesterday. Yet it's the Chicago Express that probably best lays the political scene right now. In any way in which the action of the convention is regarded, an intolerable affront has been placed upon the regular Democrats of the state of New York. This is exactly what's going on with the Chicago Express is talking about. Cleveland has the nomination of his party. He's got the right to run as the Democrat for president on all of these ballots. But it's only worth something if New York State can be won in the general election. He's got to unlock the key to New York State 
to get the presidency. Otherwise, he's going to suffer a loss and potentially embarrassing consecutive loss. These newspapers know that. So does his campaign manager, William C. Whitney. And he's trying to get Cleveland to find a way to make peace with the Tammany Hall folks. We've got to carry New York to beat Harrison. And Hill is not happy at all about his defeat. William C. Whitney now tries to get Cleveland to send a letter to the Tammany bosses. And he writes it for him. Send a letter to Murphy. Say this. Can you come to the harbor and pay me a visit? Let us sink all of our personal feelings aside. I'll be damned if I sign that letter, Cleveland says. I'll be damned, Whitney. Cleveland wanted no cooperation with the bosses at all. A base of cutthroats that would scuttle the ship. That's what Cleveland thinks of them. And Whitney continues to want, well, we'll see what you can do, he writes to Cleveland. How, see if you can find your way to be more conciliatory. He's real concerned. David B. Hill, normally a governor of New York who's a Democrat, would join the Democratic Advisory Committee. And he doesn't. Hill writes a letter making it clear he's not going to approach Whitney. I mean, that's how tense things are. Okay. Cleveland doesn't want to address the situation. Whitney eventually, and you're getting into summer. Now, fortunately, it's 1892 with the way conventions run. It's not like every day there's a political story. It's summertime. Cleveland is hunting and fishing. But Whitney writes him a letter. You're going to lose the state of New York. No, I'm not, Whitney. If I don't win the state of New York, I can win Wisconsin and Illinois and still win the election. Now, Cleveland had to know, and Whitney certainly knows, that no Democrat had won Illinois or Wisconsin a long time. These are Republican states. Illinois, the last win, it's the land of Lincoln. The last win was 1856 with Buchanan. With Wisconsin, the last win was 1852 with Pierce. He's going to state his election on that? Stake his election on that? Come on. As it gets to September, and there's now, the newspapers are starting to speculate. Why isn't there any conversation between the Democrats and Tammany Hall and the National Democrats and Whitney and others? Benjamin Harrison might be weak, but you don't just have to beat Benjamin Harrison. You've got to win New York. What's happening here? And Whitney meets with the Tammany folks, particularly Croker, who's their fundraiser, and sets up a meeting reluctantly, grudgingly, really not wanting to go, at the same time writing three letters to other people expressing how wishy-washy he is about even going to this meeting, that going to the meeting alone can be seen as something bad. Cleveland gives in and agrees at least to talk to the Tammany folks. Cleveland's faced many tests in this election. He'll face one more. He sets up a meeting with the leader of Tammany Hall and with the leader of the state Democratic Party, just by going. Cleveland could be seen as making a deal with Tammany. Grumbling, reluctant, deeply troubled is how Nevins describes Cleveland as he leaves his vacation home. I'll be as agreeable as I can, but I won't pledge to do their bidding. Edward Murphy, the Tammy... Tammany fundraiser, and State Chair Sheen, an old Cleveland rival from Buffalo, uh, Whitney, 
and a favorable senator from Michigan to Cleveland, Don Dickinson, are all at this dinner. And it's a dinner set up to discuss politics. But at dinner, no one discusses politics. Over coffee and cigars. It then comes out. Cleveland asks these men who are leading New York State for the Democratic Party. He's the Democratic nominee for president. How is the campaign? New York State chair says, Not well. Your reformer mugwup friends are attacking us. And not a word from the candidate defending us. What's more, if you are elected again, we must have more jobs, much more than we had in your first term. We want pledges from you. I will not go to the White House pledged to you or to anyone else. I will make no secret promises. Now, memories of this meeting differ as to who said what, but at the minimum, Cleveland says no promises. There's some accounts where he bangs on the table. Maybe he didn't do all that, but at minimum, he said, no promises. Then, between Whitney and the Tammany men, they noticed the tension. Well, I can still withdraw from the race. And it's then when the Tammany fundraiser says, well, this meeting isn't about promises anyway, Mr. President, and... Whitney gladly joins his co-arranger of the meeting and says, absolutely, this isn't about the promises. We newspaper told a story of what happened. As Sheenan made his points, Edward Murphy kept a rumble of supporting growls in the background. Cleveland's temper finally rose. At the critical moment, he got to his feet and declared that sooner than making proper concessions to win Tammany's support, he would withdraw from the race. Conference broke up without any definite decision or explicit understanding. Whitney wrote in jubilant terms to Cleveland just after the conference, Your last visit did a world of good. On September 19th, even Hill, crushed, humiliated, sore, accepted the inevitable. He appeared that day in Brooklyn and in a sportsmanlike speech said, I am a Democrat. I was a Democrat before the Chicago Convention, and I am a Democrat still. And then Nevins goes on, the campaign of 1892 is the cleanest, quietest, and most credible in the memory of the post-war generation. Travelers on long journeys told astonishing stories of never having heard a single reference to the election on trains or in the streets. The childish specularity of previous campaigns of brass bands, the rallies, the torchlight processions, the marching clubs were largely discarded. Still with after this meeting... Fifth Avenue Hotel, New York, betting. That's where bets were conducted. Still favored the Republicans. That problem was easily solved. William Whitney, former Standard Oil executive, put down half a million in odds for Cleveland to change the standings. It's representative of the type of campaign that Cleveland ran. And so I think there's two very important things to talk about in discussing the election of 1892 once Cleveland gets that nomination 
and secures the complexities of Tammany Hall. You have out west the Populist Party, James Weaver, who's combined the Farmer Alliance and the Populist in the South and various Granger parties into one. And they're going to essentially be against all parties, but they're going to hurt Harrison a bit more than Cleveland. They're no fans of Cleveland, though. Cleveland has is with some of the big business interests in his stand on hard money. Not so much with the tariff issue. You know, most of the big manufacturers are going to be supporters of the Republican Party and high-tariff people. But he's got enough uh, businessmen on his side. So, you know, Cleveland is by no means a populist. But the populists are happy to take Democratic support in certain states, say Kansas, say Colorado, where Democrats know they have no chance and simply run no candidate and allow the populists to beat the Republicans. Weaver's going to end up taking five states and getting electoral votes in six. Another important note to make, we cannot discuss Grover Cleveland without discussing that He's going to get a solid vote of support in the South. Now, it's not automatic. You look at some of these states, Arkansas, Tennessee, uh, Texas even, there's a pretty strong either Republican or um, or populist challenge to Cleveland, but just not enough. He's going to win comfortably in most of these states. There are attempts by Republicans, by Harrison's people, to form fusion tickets uh, between the populists and the Republicans in order to beat the Democrats in some of these southern states where they can't win. You know, Alabama, several counties of Alabama go for the populists. Many counties in Texas go for the populists. But there's voter intimidation of African-American voters in these um, southern states. And there's also bossism where the state machine is going to count the votes. Republicans decide, for instance, not to contest North Carolina because Democrats, in a sense, count the votes there. In discussing the story of Grover Cleveland, I believe he felt on the issues he was morally right. But we do have some modern issues to bring to light, like the need for average people to obtain credit and the oppression of African Americans in the South, which Cleveland was not going to do actively anything for. Now, it is true in the discussions in some of these southern states, David Hill was seen as the person who would be more likely than Cleveland to oppose if Congress was to put out a force bill, but in a sense forced the state to comply with federal law with civil rights laws. But he's not elected. It's not one of his key issues um, to defend the rights of African Americans. Where Harrison had tried to do that, I think that's an important thing to state here so this doesn't become so so much of a one-sided uh, celebration. This from Benjamin Harrison, A Hoosier President, by Seavers. Down to the last day, an optimistic Harrison regarded the contest as extremely close. In October, he noted that there is a substantial drift to us of old soldiers and protection Democrats. If these can be added to a full Republican vote, we will win. But confidence pervaded the Cleveland camp where managers predicted a close victory, claiming both Indiana and New York for the Democrats. On election evening, President Harrison awaited the returns in the cabinet room with a telegraphic instrument. Cleveland, in their home in New York City, did the same. By three in the morning, 
Benjamin Howerson retired, knowing that he had been defeated. And about the same hour, in the Cleveland home, the winner sagely remarked, It's a solemn thing to be president. Cleveland had secured a majority of slightly under 375,000, and the Electoral College he won 277 to 145 for to Harrison and 22 for James Weaver, the populist. 12 million citizens voted, and a million of them voted populist. It was the most decisive win, therefore, since Lincoln's re-election in 1864. And it showed that the doubtful states of New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and Indiana had all slipped easily into the Cleveland column. He even gained an electoral vote from rock-solid Republican Ohio. Something else. The states that Cleveland thought he would win, Illinois and Wisconsin, indeed he did. Many reasons were extended for the Republican loss. Some Republicans look inward at this 1892 election and feel that Harrison's efforts to strongly bring a force bill to enforce civil rights in the South, uh, which wasn't successful, but he attempted it, led to a revolt. It strengthened the other side's partisans. That's one explanation. The McKinley tariff was certainly unpopular and that being passed. The Harrison campaign was misrun, many felt. But there could be no doubt about this. It was, in a sense, a poison chalice for Grover Cleveland. There's already going to be the first railroad failure before he even gets to the White House, and he's going to have to take immediate uh, measures as he enters, because the economy is going to reach its worst in 1893 and 1894. Now, it's not like this is an exact parallel to today or what might be a recipe for winning such a term like today. But obviously, we have a candidate seeking to do what Grover Cleveland did, and you're going to hear a lot about that. The one point I wanted to make in contrast I think is really important is that Cleveland had previously had a popular vote win of 90,000 votes or nearly 1% in the last election, but still lost in the Electoral College. And that was something new for people then. It's also important to state that he seriously felt that as a losing candidate, he had a disadvantage and that some steps that he took, thinking he was casting away presidential ambition, inadvertently boomeranged and helped him in a good way. So what can I say? It's probably a different story than anything that's going to occur, and there, but yet there might be lessons, as there always is, in history. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistory can beat up your politics.com. We are at MYHIST, my hist, on Twitter. Thanks for listening.